excuse me, God's word in Luke chapter 6, verses 36 through 38 says, Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will be not judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Let's pray. Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. Lord, I ask that what is heard over these next few minutes will be your word. That your word will penetrate between joint and marrow and will encourage, convict, exhort, and most of all, bring honor to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus often locked horns with the religious leaders of Israel while he was on earth. And in one interchange recorded in John 8, 44 through 45, Jesus said to them, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character. For he is a liar and father of lies. Well, Jesus' words there reveal the principle that we saw last week in Luke 6. And that is that our actions reveal our true spiritual family, who our spiritual father is. And thus, as we looked last week at these commands, such as love your enemy and do good to those who hate you. We are saying these weren't just some abstract moral code that exists in the universe. But this is the way God relates to humans. God loves his enemies. God does good when people treat him wrongly. In the light of that, we said to do what Jesus says here is not going to be done by gritting your teeth, going out and going, okay, this week I'm going to go do it. This week I'm going to love my enemies. This week I'm going to do these things. No, rather, to do these, we have to first admit this is not natural to us. This is supernatural. And so I need supernatural help. I need strength that I don't have. I can't do this in and of myself. And so the message of Jesus, his logic is quite different from what we hear today. Today, we're told to boast in our abilities and we can do anything we want. And yet Jesus says, even if you look at the beginning of this sermon, Luke 6 verse 20, he says, blessed are you who are poor. And when we looked at that, we saw that meant poor in spirit or humble. It's as we realize we can't do these things. We're not naturally in and of ourselves good, that rather it's God who's good. And he loves us, even people who are his enemies. And then as we reflect on that, we then reflect him and his love and light to those around us. Well, Jesus continues giving commands this morning that follow this model. And again, like last week, if you hear these commands and you leave, go, okay, I'm going to go do this. Whew. I'm going to go be merciful to people. I'm going to go not judge anyone in your own strength, you will not continue to do it. Rather, these all radiate, these all come from the beauty and glory of God's character. That's where these commands come from. And it's as we realize His glorious nature and reflect on that, that we can then reflect it to others. A few years ago, my family went to Yellowstone, and one of the challenges of Yellowstone is there's too much beauty. There's not enough time. And so you'll go see this incredible lake or incredible geyser with this scenery. And then you'll go, well, we got to go. We got to see the next thing on the list. 
You could stop and sit at any one of them for days. And yet, you got to see everything else he else from. So you got to keep going. Well, this morning, we're going to fly through all these amazing attributes of God that any one could be a full sermon itself. But Jesus is giving us a whistle-stop tour. Look, see how this applies to me. Live this way. All right, let's look at the next one. Look, see how I'm like this. Wonderful. Now let's go to the next one. On and on. And so Jesus is giving us all these beautiful things. He's going to tell us of God's mercy. How God's mercy triumphs over judgment. And God's generosity and forgiveness to us. If you have a bulletin, you can see that outline on the back. It's about being merciful. About letting mercy triumph over judgment. And then lastly, showing generosity. But first, in verse 36, being merciful. And Jesus commands them, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You're probably familiar with the story in the Old Testament where Moses wanted to see God, but God said, you can't see my face and live. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll go by you. And then once I'm behind and I've passed, I'll allow you to see basically the after effects of me. When this happens, God also declares, Exodus 34, 6, he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is a merciful being. Well, what is mercy? Mercy is when you see someone in distress, see them in misery, and you move to help them. And as seen in Luke 6.35, God does this even for his enemies. Now, God, by his nature, has to be just. He has to always do what is right. God never has to be merciful. Now, that's rather unnatural to our way of thinking today. We think, well, of course God's merciful and forgives. He has to. Well, no, he doesn't. You know, consider the fallen angels. For none of the fallen angels did God the Father send his Son to die for them. It's only for humans. So he didn't have to do anything. Thus, any kindness we have, any goodness, is due to God's mercy that we don't deserve. And that's why we should pray as Daniel did in Daniel 9.18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your mercy. We're always under the need of God's mercy. We can never come to God and go, well, look, I earned this one. I was really good. I did what I was supposed to. So you owe me a good life. Never. It's always God's mercy upon us. Paul says the same thing in Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You know, the contrast between what we do and what God does for us could not be stronger. It's all God's mercy. It's his mercy alone that gives us hope. You know, God doesn't owe us anything, but we owe him a debt that we can a, cannot pay back due to our sin. See, mercy explains, as one man, Dave Harvey, says, how a holy and loving God can relate to sinners without compromising who he is. You know, mercy explains how he can be just and yet still be kind to us when we are sinners. And it's God's merciful character that gives us hope that we can approach God humbly and that he'll hear us. Joel 2.13 gives us encouragement. It says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfastness. You maybe have done something at some time 
that you knew you shouldn't have done, let's just say you're a kid and you hit the ball, broke the window, and you know you need to go tell the neighbor, but you're not sure how they're going to respond. And you know they have all right to be angry with you, but you have no hope that they'll be merciful. Well, that's not God's character. God says, if you come to me, Joel 2, I will be merciful. Humble yourself. I will show mercy. And so Jesus is then just reflecting that. Well, since you've known God's mercy, you need to be merciful to others. When we see people in distress and misery, we should reach out with words and deeds of comfort. However, the mercy of humans is often not very great. You may be familiar with King David in the Old Testament. He sinned. He wanted to boast in how great his country was and his military. So he had his commander go out and take a census. And the census wasn't bad in and of itself. It's why he wanted to do it. And God ended up punishing him. And he offered him three potential punishments. And David said in 2 Samuel 24, 14, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. You humans are not very naturally merciful. In fact, even as God's people, we can wrongly still harbor hopes that God's going to punish people, get them back for what they did to us, rather than hope they get mercy. Jonah exemplifies the worst of our thoughts. Maybe we've never prayed this, but maybe thought it. Jonah 4.2, after Nineveh had turned back and confessed their sin, Jonah prays, O Lord, is this not why I said when I was in my country? This is, sorry, is this not why I fled haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you're gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In other words, Jonah says, I didn't want to go tell them the good news of repentance because I knew they'd repent and then you wouldn't punish them. I wanted you to give them what they deserved. I wanted them to get what I don't get. And Jesus is saying, no. If you've known my mercy, you should then want everyone to taste of that same mercy as well, even in your own life. So where in your life can you extend mercy rather than judgment? Dave Harvey, in his excellent little book, When Sinners Say I Do, writes, Mercy sweetens marriage. Where it is absent, two people flog one another over everything from failure to fix the faucet to phone bills. And we could add the same, that mercy sweetens playgrounds, boardrooms, churches. Mercy sweetens everything because it gives hope of forgiveness and good rather than judgment. Dave Harvey again writes, Mercy doesn't need the change, doesn't change the need to speak the truth. It transforms our motivation from a desire to win battles to a desire to rep represent Christ. It takes me out of the center and puts Christ in the center. And so he, he's driving at what is the center of your life? Is it about you getting what you deserve or realizing that you were given something you never deserved, grace and mercy? And then giving that to others. You know, God did not treat us the way we should. And so we need him to have this supernatural interaction with others. That when they are unkind, when they are rude, we extend this mercy to them. And the great news is that God will show us this mercy. Hebrews 4, 14-16 are some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It says, 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Jesus came and he lived out this mercy and then he extends to us promises of hope. When we come to him and confess, I don't want to show them any mercy at all. I don't want to do that. Would you help me? He is there to give us mercy and grace in the time of need. Well, one amazing way we can extend this mercy is by withholding judgment. And that's the second section, verse 37. Letting mercy triumph over judgment. Luke 6, 37. First it says, do not judge and you will not be judged. What Jesus forbids here is illustrated quite well in his parable in Luke 18. There, Jesus tells of the Pharisee standing by himself who prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so in this parable, Jesus is showing two ways that we look at people. The Pharisee looks down on others. He condemns them. He says, I don't thank you, God. I'm not like that sinner over there. However, in contrast, is the tax collector who isn't looking down on anyone but himself. He's saying, I am a sinner and I need mercy. And Jesus' point throughout this section is, what you believe is revealed in how you act. If you're a self-righteous person, then you will look down your nose at others. Rather than extending mercy to others, you'll only strike the gavel of judgment. In contrast, if you're humbled like the tax collector and realize you need the mercy of God, well then that'll be revealed in how you relate to others. Now what I've said so far is quite different from the way this verse has often been used. You know, some have taken Jesus' words and said, oh, well, I could never serve on a jury because Jesus is telling me not to judge. And on a jury, you have to say guilty or innocent. Can't do that. Others more often have used this to say that Jesus is saying we should never say anything is morally right or wrong. You're having a conversation either in person or online. And all of a sudden they throw down what they think is the trump card. Boom, you hypocrite. Jesus said, don't judge. And you're judging those moral actions. Ha <laughs> ha. As though that ends all discussion. Well, that's clearly not what Jesus means. If Jesus' words meant you should never say something is right or wrong, then Jesus just broke the very thing he said you shouldn't do. It is either right or wrong to say something is right or wrong. So Jesus would be undoing his very words to say, what I'm telling you is never declare anything is right or wrong, and that is a right thing to do. No, that's not what he meant. He's talking about, do you have a self-righteous Look down your nose at other people always condemning them and judging them? Or do you have a humble attitude that realizes, I'm a sinner too. I struggle and I'm not going to go around condemning you for all that you do. Now, the reason these words get twisted this way is our culture has some 
unstated assumptions. One assumption is that if you really love someone, then you have to accept all their personal moral choices. And this is really assumed to be true because we also think, look, no one should ever tell you how to live. No authority should ever do that. You should be the only authority in your life. You be you, so we're told. And then this verse by Jesus gets twisted to support this radical individualism. Even, sadly, amongst younger active Christians, nearly half say evangelism is wrong because if someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you. Well, that's not Jesus' point at all. Jesus' point is none of those things. Again, it's are we going to be the type of people like God who show kindness when we're sinned against mercy instead of condemnation and it is important to notice these abuses but these words need to be applied to our life to my life you know we are very quick when something is done to us to assume the worst of other people's motives but if we do it to them to assume you just don't know my heart you bump into someone and in anger, they're like, hey, what are you doing? You're like, oh, it's just an accident, relax. They bump into you and you're like, you jerk, you're always walking around trying to bump into me. Or you may be or know people who are always willing to crack jokes at everyone's expense. Oh, I'm just joking, don't worry. But heaven forbid ever, someone ever crack a joke about them because their response is the most mean-spirited, unkind words that ever flow out of someone's mouth. Because you are going to be cracking jokes, let me crack some too. You know, it's never the same. It's always responding in a more harsh and more unloving manner. And Jesus condemns the self-righteous way we do look down our nose at others. And so we have to ask, are we quick to find faults in others? Now, the point is not that you can't humbly point out someone's errors, but... It's that we're often kind of smugly pleased inside when we catch them. Ha <laughs> ha, they just use the wrong English words. <laughs> Look, they're, they're wearing the wrong, those clothes don't match. Can you believe that? Oh, can you tell the way they had their house decorated? And there's nothing beyond our internal judgment that will make us think, aren't they horrible? And we feel better about ourselves. And Jesus is probing and asking, are you quicker to self-righteously judge, or to humbly offer grace. Well, second, Jesus says in this section, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. One of the greatest effects of the gospel is declared by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, due to Christ taking our guilt and shame, we do not have to worry about being condemned and this gets played out beautifully in jesus life turn over to john chapter 8 so we're in luke 6 but turn over one book to john chapter 8 and we'll look at verses 3 through 11 because in this i think we see exemplified both what jesus is meaning in these verses and not the distortion of what he's often taken to mean john 8 beginning in verse 3 it says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might judge. 
sorry, that they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now from the very beginning, this is clear that this is a trick. This is a test. This is not a real situation because how could a woman be caught in the act of adultery but she be the only one who is brought for condemnation? Well, clearly two people should be condemned in this situation. They're not here to really see whether Jesus wants to do what's right or wrong. They're just trying to test him. So Jesus sees through this trickery. trickery, And so he responds by saying, Whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. Well, after everyone leaves, Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Now, we need to note, if there was anyone who could have thrown the first stone, who could it have been? Jesus. He's without sin. He could have thrown the first stone, and then all the others could have come with it. Yet, rather than giving condemnation, he offered grace. And yet, that's where many people want to stop the story. See, Jesus doesn't condemn any moral actions. Everything's fine, but he says more Because he then says to the woman, go and sin no more. He's giving a moral evaluation. He's saying there is right and wrong and what you did was sin, but you need to stop acting that way. And so here we see that Jesus' love is on one level acceptance, but it's not mere acceptance because it's also a call to live a changed life. In Jesus' love, he doesn't just merely accept and condone He says, I'll take the condemnation and now go live differently. And yet this is really quite different from what we hear today. Many people think, as David Pallison writes, that people are basically okay. Deep down, you're okay. God accepts you just as you are. You have intrinsic worth. Relax, bask in God's smile, and let the basically good, real you emerge. Except that's not the way God views us. He doesn't just merely accept us. There was something wrong that had to be fixed. That was our sin. God does not just accept us and merely overlook our shortcomings. God loves us in spite of who we are. His love expressed itself in not giving us the punishment we deserve, but rather pouring that punishment on His Son, Jesus. He accepts us because Jesus was perfect in our place. The only reason Jesus could say to the woman, neither do I condemn you, is he knew he was going to take her condemnation in her place. There's no other way he could have said that. And thus we can boldly declare in Christ, no condemnation now I dread. And Jesus' words here could not be more practical to life because we encounter times where we're wronged all the time. As I was preparing the sermon I've had a cold this week, and I opened up a Paul's cough drop, and to my horror and and my shame, it was only a third of a cough drop. Now, if I was a normal redeemed sinner, I'd think nothing of it, but this is what went through my mind. I know what I'll do. I'll take a picture, and I'll put it online, and I'll say, Halls, thanks for the full cough drop. 
And that's really ridiculous. Because, let's just think, they have these machines that pump out probably thousands of cough drops per second. Is it probably in a normal world logical to think that every once in a while the machine doesn't pump all the goo in? Yeah, probably so. And as the machines cool down and then separate, isn't it probably likely that every once in a while one of them doesn't get fully formed? Yeah, it breaks. So couldn't I just be gracious and go, God, okay, so I got one out of a package that wasn't full. Oh, well, let's get another one and keep going. And yet we're so quick, or I'm so quick, to condemn and go, ha, huh, not just did you do me wrong, but I'm going to let others know and I'm going to make you pay. All one of you out there who follows me on Facebook, you also know the Halls did this. I've been wronged. And that's condemnation. That's, I'm going to get you back. But shouldn't that make me feel sad that we're so petty, or I'm so petty? I mean, how much did that cost me? Maybe 10 cents, probably less. And yet, I, I, want, I want to get you back because you wronged me. That's not fair. And yet, these things aren't limited to cough drops in our age. With our online connectivity, we want... We demand that people cast condemnation quickly. Whenever a major story goes across our nation, we stare online at major people until they'll either say, oh, that person is innocent or that person is guilty. We demand that people cast verdicts on people's actions when we're not even in the place to do it. You know, most time, we don't have all the facts. And even if we did, it's not our job to step in and say, well, that person is or is not guilty. But I think all this really raises an interesting question. Why are we so prone to want to condemn? I mean, I already confessed I am, and you may be too. I would argue, I think Scripture is arguing, it's because we are created to be approved, accepted, loved, and, and we want to be declared. What we do is right. But how often do we just fear that we won't be? I mean, we're, we're concerned about well, what are they going to think of the casserole I bring? Will everyone like the outfit I'm wearing today? What about that comment I just made? We live in fear of being condemned. You know, why is public speaking like one almost always in the top ten of things people fear? Well, it's because we fear what will all those people out there say about me? We don't want their condemnation. We don't want them to think bad of us. Yet, you know, there is one being who knows more about us than just what we say publicly. He knows everything about us. You know, if in this room, we knew everything you thought this last week, we wouldn't want to show up. And yet God knows everything we thought and did this last week. And yet he still says, there is therefore now no condemnation. For you who are in Christ Jesus. He knows all and yet he doesn't condemn us because of his son. And all of this I think really highlights the way that our culture continues to praise biblical values. Mercy, love, compassion. While at the same time cutting out the roots by their denial of biblical truths. You know, for the last 400 years western culture has slowly been chopping away at the roots of a Christian view of the world. We've replaced God at the center of our existence and put man squarely in his place. We've praised humans, said we're the greatest. We can do anything we want to. We set our mind to. 
We've denied that God's actively involved in this world and said that right and wrong are just social constructs so we can live. And yet, though we've gotten rid of all these roots that build up the Christian faith, we still want all the fruits. We want this, oh yeah, love your enemies, that's great. Oh yeah, be kind and merciful, that's wonderful. Don't condemn, yeah, we don't want that. And yet, the more we've removed these roots, the less we see the fruits of Christian virtues. Well, why? Well, let's just think of a common thing. It seems odd to me, but it's growing more and more this push in our society to stop bullying. But the more we say don't bully people, the more it's going up. Well, let's just think through. Why would this happen? Well, young child goes up. Hey, do I have any value? Am I made in God's image? Oh, no, you're just another assortment of cells and chemical synapses. Are my sinful? Oh, no, no, you're a wonderful person. Is there anything worth living for beyond this life? Nope, this is all you got. One shot. Now, champ, go out there, and uh, though you don't really mean anything, and though there's really nothing for your deep hurt and confusion because you know you've done a lot of wrong things, just keep believing in yourself, and don't worry because whether you do right or wrong doesn't matter in the long run, but hey, go out and be loving. Hmm, why is no one motivated by this? That's hard to figure out. Well, it's because we've denied all the things that would make us love our enemies, that would make us want to be kind to someone who's hateful towards us. You know, C.S. Lewis states this well. He says, In a ghostly simplicity, we remove the organ and the man the function. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh in honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and build the geldings to be fruitful. Now, we should be glad that in our society there's still many people who want to follow Christ's teachings on some of these moral issues. But we need to then also say, if you really think these are good, you have to realize they won't last if you chop off the roots of why he said them in the first place. They're undergirded by all these other truths of who Christ is and what he taught. You know, it's only as we realize Christ's other words are true that you know, we're sinners. And we've rebelled and we deserve God's wrath. And yet there's a solution that he offers. That if we turn to him in mercy, he'll give it to us because he died in our place. And then look, since he's been so merciful to me, someone who doesn't deserve it, I can then show that same mercy to others. Not only we realize it's wrong to be unmerciful, because look, he's been so merciful to me. We'll realize how ridiculous Utterly wicked it is to go around self-righteously looking down our nose at others and condemning them. Well, Jesus shows us even more by the last section, the end of verse 37 to 38, showing generosity. So back in Luke chapter 6, the end of verse 37 to 38, Jesus says, Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, I'm curious, we're not going to do this, but if we went around and said, Hey, why don't you give me a synonym or a word that means the same thing for forgive? What words would we use? You know, sometimes I think people think, well, forgive, that's the same thing as excuse. Well, no. Forgiveness is not excusing what the other person did. Sometimes people say, oh, well, forgiving is forgetting. No. Forgiveness is not forgetting what the other person did. That might happen. It might not. Well, some people say, well, forgiveness means deny. Well, no, forgiveness does not mean to deny. You don't have to deny what they did was wrong. The word here literally means release, to let go free. 
you know, for the example would be if you have someone who's in a chains and you let them go free. And Jesus used this same word in his story from forgiveness from Matthew 18 that we read earlier. <coughs> Excuse me. The story was given because Peter thought he was a rather righteous guy and he goes, well, Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Maybe seven times. Oh, aren't I such the righteous guy? And Jesus replies, no, not seven times. Seventy times seven. Basically, Jesus is saying infinitely. And then Jesus told the story. And he tells, and if you take the situation of their day, here is this master and he had a servant who owed roughly 200,000 years worth of debt. So 200,000 years worth of debt, and he calls it in. And the servant comes in, and he does something that is exactly what you would expect. It's very appropriate, but then he does something ridiculous. I don't know if you caught it when it was read earlier. First, he begs for mercy. Well, that's, yeah, appropriate, because you don't have any hope. 200,000 years worth of debt. But then ridiculously, he says, if you just give me more time, I'll pay it off. What? You're not going to live 200,000 years you're not retiring at 65, that's for sure, but you're never going to make it to 200,000 more time. No way. And yet the master is merciful. And it says, same word as Luke 6, the master released him, forgave him his debt. In other words, forgiveness is when someone owes you in some way. And it could be financial like this story, but it might be relational because of their words. Or it might be that they sinned against you in some way. And you have them proverbially in your grip. You could punish them because of what they've done to you. But like the master in the story, you can either call in the debt, make them pay, or you can release them of the debt they owe to you. So forgiveness is not denying. You're actually admitting they have a debt. So you're not denying what they did was what they did. Nor are you excusing it. You're saying what you did was wrong. But I'm releasing you of the punishment of it. You know, forgiveness is the costly choice to release them of the real wrong they've done by paying the cost yourself. You see, forgiveness is never completely free. One person always has to pay. One person either has to Take it on themselves or put it on the other person. You see, God never excuses our sin or just arbitrarily forgives it. In Jesus, he paid the cost so that we might be forgiven. But the sad reality, as Matthew 18 goes on, is that though we've been forgiven much, we're like the man in the story too often. Because then he goes out, and though he owed 200,000 years worth of debt, he finds another fellow servant who owes him three to four months wages. Now, is three to four months wages a lot? Yeah. Take your yearly salary and divide by three or four. Four or three. I don't know. We'll do the math later. But either way, it's a lot of money. Three or four months of your salary. I mean, if someone did something to you and you lost that much money, you'd go, that's a lot. So it's not as though this is insignificant. But when you compare it to 200,000 years, it's like, such a tiny fraction, you wouldn't even notice it. And yet, though he finds this servant who owes him this small amount to compare to what he was just forgiven, he grabs him and he chokes him. And he says, you pay me back right now what you owe me. And the man asks for release, just as he had been released. 
And he said, no. And he threw him into debtor's prison. Well, the other servants, you can imagine, they're terrified. Here's this raging ball of anger who's going to go get anyone who owes anything. And so they go tell the master. And Jesus tells these, gives these words in Matthew 18. He says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, just like the master's forgiveness obligated the servant to forgive his servants, God's forgiveness obligates us to forgive others as well. You know, this is the case because no matter what anyone has ever done to you, you will never forgive them more than God has already forgiven you. And so Jesus ends his words in Matthew 18 by saying, God will do the same to you or to me if we don't forgive others from the heart. What? So we have to forgive people to be forgiven? Well, that's what Jesus is saying. Well, this works. Is Jesus saying, well, you have to go and you got to do all these good things and then you earn his forgiveness? Well, no, think about his parable. The parable began with showing that the servant had a debt he could never pay off. So it's not then twisting the parable. The point from the beginning of the parables, you can never pay this off. Realize that rather what Jesus is saying, it's those who have drunk deeply at the well of divine forgiveness will then be able to share that same cool drink of forgiveness with others. You know, we'll never motivate ourselves to do this in and of ourselves. We need to see God's supernatural forgiveness to do this for others. And that's even played out in our society. There was a study a few years ago, and 94% of Americans say forgiving others is an important thing to do. But in that same survey, only 48% say they actually try and do that. So almost double the number. No, this is what I should do. But only half of those do it. Because if you don't see that you are a sinner who needs God's forgiveness, why would you ever forgive someone else? They owe you. But if you are the 200,000 years worth of debt person who's forgiven, what is three to four months? So Jesus is not saying at all we earn our salvation or lose it. He's saying this is the evidence of being forgiven. And so with the commands in Matthew 18 and here, Jesus is saying our true spiritual condition, our spiritual family is revealed by our actions. God's family has traits of love, mercy, forgiveness, and generosity. Those outside his family are known for revenge, condemnation, grudges. You know, how would those who know you best say you really act? Are you quick to point out faults? Always noting why other people's plans won't work. Constantly bringing up the past, blaming others. Do you more quickly run to help or consider why I really don't have to help this time? Do you consider their actions against you worthy of you treating them back the same or worse? And so these words 
of Jesus brings strong exhortation and even warning. You know, often when we talk to Christians, we say, well, you're, de- you're questioning if you're a Christian. Well, do you remember a time when you really believed? Do you have a moment where you did something that you can look back to? Well, trust in that moment, and then you'll know that you're good. But you'll never find those words in the Bible. Jesus says, if you want to know, look at your life. Is there being revealed in you family traits? What if I don't see those traits? Well, the whole point is, well, then go back to the merciful God and say, have mercy on me because I'm not the type of being I should be. And that's why I need your forgiveness. And then it's as you soak in and you look at the wonderful, merciful grace of God that you then will begin to overflow in that same grace, mercy, and kindness to others. Now, if you seek this in your own strength, you'll never reflect God. So what we need to do is kneel and humbly bask in the radiance of His mercy and forgiveness and grace. And then as the moon reflects the sun... So you'll reflect in your life the Son of God and His character to the world around you. Let's pray. Lord, we are more prone to condemn, to want to get people back for the ways we think they've mistreated us. And Lord, we just reveal how unlike you we are. Oh Lord, forgive us. We make so little of your forgiveness We make so much of us being treated wrongly. Lord, help us to see and know our sin, not to beat ourselves up, but ultimately to see your grace and so that we may then reflect that to this dying and desperate world around us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.